0: Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Welcome back to the Big T Trauma Series on Behind the Knife. In this series, we cover clinically-oriented material that focuses on how best to care for traumatically injured and critically ill patients. My name is Patrick Georgoff, Trauma Surgery Fellow at the University of Texas, Memorial Hermann, Red Duke Trauma Institute in Houston, Texas. And today, I'm joined by Jason Brill, also a Trauma Surgery Fellow at the University of Texas in Houston, and a Lieutenant Commander in the United States Navy Medical Corps.
1: Great to be here, Patrick. First, uh, a quick disclaimer that I have to start with. No funding was received for this work, and the authors have no personal, financial, or institutional interest in any of the topics being described in this article today. The views expressed in the presentation are those of the authors and do not reflect the official policy or
0: position of the Department of Navy, Department of Defense, nor the U.S. government. All right, today we are going to talk about gun violence. Gun violence is an extremely important topic, but much of what we hear is deeply political. There is very, very little educational content out there. And in the trauma world, many of us see the effects of gun violence daily, if not multiple times a day. So it's important that we be educated on this topic.
1: That's right. Most practitioners in the field of trauma have strong and oftentimes complicated feelings about gun violence. As surgeons, we know the carnage that bullets inflict on the human body, the way a bullet can ravage the liver, tear through a heart, shatter a bone. We're trained to stop the bleeding, to rapidly open a patient's chest or abdomen, stem the flow of blood, and because of that, we also know the depths of sadness, guilt, and sometimes rage that can occur when a patient injured by gun violence doesn't make it.
0: But in addition to being surgeons, we are also citizens, we are activists, parents, and friends. And many of us grew up using guns, and many of us are proud, responsible gun owners, And while our opinions on gun control may vary, we as surgeons play a prominent role in the ongoing debate surrounding gun violence in the United States. In fact, all Level 1 trauma centers are required to participate in injury prevention and public safety initiatives. But just because we can stop the bleeding, do we know the facts? Do we know the history? And as leaders in the medical community, do we know how to talk about the politics of gun rights and gun safety?
1: For the most part, I would hazard that for some of us, the answer is no. It's very easy to see why, too. The issue is highly polarizing and emotional, and good, clean facts are hard to tease out. So today, we're going to cover the fundamentals of gun violence in America. Our goal is that each and every person who listens to this podcast will be better informed and therefore better able to understand and articulate their own thoughts on this complicated issue. We've worked very hard to ensure every piece of data in this talk comes from a reliable source, but as we will discuss,
0: research into gun violence is limited and the gaps in data are large. In this episode, we will talk about gun violence statistics, the Second Amendment, current gun law, why there are no research dollars, gun policy with a focus on background checks, assault weapons, and public opinion, and recommendations from the American College of Surgeons Committee on Trauma. So Patrick, first,
1: let's talk about just the basic numbers.
0: Excellent. Okay, so uh, there are an estimated 357 million guns in the United States, uh, and there are an estimated, or I guess not estimated, but currently around 317 million people living in the United States.
1: With the census just starting up again this year. So while the number of new guns entering circulation each year has gone up, the number of households with a gun has actually gone down.
0: Right. Uh, in the United States, it makes up 4.4% of the world population, but owns 42% of the world's guns.
1: And the homicide rate in the United States is significantly higher than other high-income countries.
0: But when compared to all other countries, including developed and developing nations, the United States is nowhere near the top of that list, which is dominated by Central and South American countries.
1: It's also important to note that overall violent crime rates in the United States, including gun-specific violence, has gone down since its peak in the early 1990s.
0: Right, and this is something we don't hear much about in the news, even though the decrease in crime has been significant and long-lasting. What about suicide? On average, 33,000
1: Americans are killed by guns every year. Approximately two-thirds of these deaths
0: are by suicide, and the other third is by homicide. And over the past few years, gun deaths have actually increased, uh, with a greater increase occurring due to suicide. While only 6% of suicide attempts involve a gun, firearms account for more suicide deaths than any other means combined. Right. So that means that attempting suicide with a gun is highly effective when compared to other strategies. Correct. And finally, mass shootings. Uh, Mass shootings are defined as any shooting incident with four or more victims, not including the shooter. Uh, There have been over 300 mass shootings per year in each of the past three years. And while common,
1: mass shootings only account overall for 1% of gun deaths.
0: Right. All right. So that was a heavy kind of back and forth look at the numbers. So let's move on to the Second Amendment. So interestingly, the United States is one of only three countries in the world with a constitutional right to bear arms. And the other two are Mexico Mexico. In Guatemala, and is the only country in the world to do so without constitutional language that specifically limits that right. That is an amazing fact that
1: I imagine many of our listeners did not know. Right, I did not know that until recently. Uh, And um, so, the Constitution of the United States contains 27 amendments. Little basic uh, political history lesson: the first 10 of which are referred to as the Bill of Rights. Hopefully some of you remember that from uh, from high school. The Second Amendment was ratified in 1791 by the US Congress and reads, quote, "A well regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear
0: arms shall not be infringed." End quote. Right, and the Bill of Rights, including the Second Amendment, was introduced by James Madison largely as a check on federal power. So, anti-federalists who championed the Bill of Rights felt that the Constitution was insufficient in its protection of individual liberties and insufficient in its protection of the states against federal tyranny. The United States was a brand new nation at the time, one made up of colonialists who had just recently freed themselves from British rule. And as such, individual liberties, including the right to own a gun, and protection against a large central government, were key tenets of our nation's founding. Yeah, makes sense. Right? That being said, much has changed since 1791. So traditional militias, like there were back in that day, fell into destitution. And today's military, which is an over $600 billion per year enterprise, is a far cry from the military construct envisioned in the Constitution. And it is for this reason that the Second Amendment, with a prefatory clause, quote, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, end quote, is so controversial. So who or what does the Second Amendment actually protect? So that is the question
1: for sure. So in general, interpretations of the Second Amendment fall into three theories, uh, which we'll name here. Number one being the militia theory. The Second Amendment protects the rights of the states to maintain a militia
0: consisting of armed citizens mobilized for common defense. Right. States can maintain a militia, and that militia can be made up of citizens, and that those citizens have the right to be armed. So it's a state's right that extends to the citizens in that militia.
1: Right. Uh, and again, these are not necessarily our theories, just the commonly purported ones. So That's the right. second one of these three, the individual rights theory, which states the Second Amendment protects the individual right to bear a firearm regardless of militia service.
0: Right. So this one's pretty much self-explanatory. It's more or less a standalone Right.
1: Exactly. And then the hybrid theory, the third, that kind of combines those two, which states the Second Amendment protects an individual right that was inextricably bound to a collective responsibility of bearing arms for common defense.
0: Okay. So, Jason, the this hybrid theory is a bit more nuanced, right? So the hybrid theory states that the Second Amendment does not create an individual right to own weapons for seeming, seemingly any lawful purpose, as individual rights theorists advocate, Nor does it merely create a right for states to raise and arm militias, as the militia theorists uh, advocate. Instead, the hybrid model places the right to insist that the state be allowed to maintain an armed, well-regulated militia with the individual citizens themselves. All
1: right. That's my brain hurts. (laughs) Lots to think about there. But like we said at the top of this podcast, this is the type of stuff you need to know to really be informed about this topic. So let's move on and talk about the courts. only gets more complex from here. Our government is one of the checks and balances, and when it comes to interpreting and enforcing the Constitution, the courts play a leading role. However, there have been amazingly few interpretations of the Second Amendment, both at the state and the federal level.
0: Right. In fact, the Supreme Court has only made three rulings on guns with another due out this year, actually.
1: The first ruling to address whose rights are actually protected by the Second Amendment was in 1939. In the United States versus Miller, the court found that two suspected bank robbers had no right to their sawed-off shotgun because such weapons did not, quote, bear some reasonable relationship
0: to the preservation or efficiency of a well-regulated militia, unquote. Yeah, and until very recently, this understanding of the Second Amendment prevailed, and not one federal appeals court overturned a gun control law on Second Amendment grounds. That is, until 2008, in Washington, D.C. versus Heller, when the Supreme Court ruled against Washington, D.C.'s 1976 law that banned civilian handgun possession and required lawful firearms in the home to be trigger-locked or disassembled.
1: Yeah, I remember that ruling, and the importance of it referred to simply as Heller in most cases, cannot be overstated. In Heller, the U.S. Supreme Court answered a long-standing constitutional question about whether the right to keep and bear arms is an individual right or one
0: connected to service in a militia. So by a 5-4 to four margin, the court held that the Second Amendment protects an individual right to possess firearms for lawful use, such as self-defense, in the home. Accordingly, it struck down as unconstitutional provisions of a D.C. law that banned possession of handguns by non-law enforcement officials and required lawfully owned firearms to be kept unloaded, disassembled, or locked.
1: Importantly, the court also determined that the Second Amendment right is not absolute and a wide range of gun control laws remain, quote-unquote, presumptively lawful. They noted specifically that this might include background checks, bans on certain weapons,
0: and bans on certain populations owning a firearm. Now, in the case of Heller, the Supreme Court ruled that D.C.'s handgun ban was enacted under the authority of the federal government, as Washington, D.C. is not a state, but a federal entity, and therefore, the Second Amendment was applicable. Two years later, in McDonald versus the city of Chicago, the third and most recent Supreme Court case, the Supreme Court determined that the Second Amendment applies to all states, not just D.C. All right, so in summary... The Supreme Court determined
1: that the right to bear arms is an individual right, but that a wide range of gun control laws remain presumptively lawful, and that the right to bear arms not connected to service
0: in a militia, and that this right applies to every citizen of the United States. All right, so while there are different theories on how to interpret the Second Amendment, the court is actually pretty clear. All right, let's move on to gun legislation.
1: Interestingly, There are only 11 major pieces of federal legislation on firearms. We'll summarize them here. These federal laws establish who is eligible to own a gun, establish a background check system, defines who is a firearms dealer and is therefore required to perform a background check, sets minimum age required to purchase, 21 for a handgun, 18 for a long gun, sets limitations on Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms and Explosives, a.k.a. the ATF, imposes a temporary ban on certain assault weapons and large-capacity ammunition and feeding devices that was allowed to lapse in 2004, more on that later, bans possessions of machine guns manufactured after 1986, and provides immunity for gun manufacturers against most tort liability.
0: So there are definitely more than 11 gun laws out there, and that's because the majority are enacted at the state level, not the federal level. And the number you might hear about or toss around in the media is that there are 20,000 gun laws in this country. And uh, this number is attributed to the late John Dingell, who was a pro-gun Democratic senator from Michigan, who first mentioned this number in a hearing in 1965. However, 20,000 is way too high. Uh, Recent counts um, have confirmed that the number of gun laws in this country uh, at the state and national level is closer to 1,000. Yeah, another good example
1: of fact-checking in action. So, interestingly also, from 1991 to 2016,
0: the number of gun laws have actually decreased in most states. Right, and there are five noticeable trends in the enactment of state firearm laws intended to protect gun rights and gun manufacturers. This is something I wasn't aware of. So, first...
1: There has been an increase in the number of stand-your-ground laws, which allow the use
0: of a gun for self-defense without a duty to retreat if people are in a place where they have a right to be. Second, there has been an overall weakening of concealed carry permit laws through the removal of discretion by law enforcement in approving such permits, and this is known as shall-issue laws. Third, there has been an increase in the adoption of
1: legislation that preempts local governments from enacting their own firearm laws.
0: Fourth, an increase in gun industry immunity laws limiting manufacturer liability by preventing potential litigation. Uh, so there were seven immunity statutes to protect gun industry in place in 1991, but in 2016, there were 33. So a big increase.
1: And fifth, there has been a weakening of state laws that prohibit concealed carry weapons in schools or on college campuses. Okay.
0: Okay. Uh, so to so summarize what we talked about related to gun laws, there are 11 major federal gun laws. The majority of gun laws are enacted at the state level. And since 1991, there has been an overall increase in state firearm laws intended to protect gun rights and gun manufacturers.
1: All right, let's move on to the question of research dollars. So with surgeons, we know that data informs our clinical decision-making. Without data, our decisions are more significantly influenced by less objective measures like personal experience, emotions, and bias. This is analogous to the diagnosis and treatment of gun violence in America. It is extremely challenging
0: to diagnose and treat a problem with little to no data. Exactly. And uh, so, a little bit of this data in a, in a study published in JAMA in 2017, Dr. David Stark and Dr. Nigam Shah uh, reviewed CDC. Recorded causes of death and compare them to federal research dollars. The study shows the very limited funds appropriated for gun violence research. In fact, gun violence killed about as many individuals as sepsis. However, funding for gun violence research was about 0.7% of that for sepsis, in publication volume, about 4% that of sepsis. In relation to mortality rates, gun violence research was the least researched cause of death and the second least funded cause of death after falls. Yeah, In
1: 1993, the release of one particular study marked the beginning of the campaign against gun violence research. Arthur Kellerman and others published a CDC-funded study in the New England Journal of Medicine that showed that keeping a gun in the home was independently associated with an increased risk of homicide with an odds ratio of 2.7. The National Rifle Association, the NRA, felt this unduly influenced gun control legislation,
0: and began a campaign to defund research. In the 1996 Omnibus Appropriations Bill, Senator J. Dickey added what is now known as the Dickey Amendment, which stated, quote, None of the funds made available for injury prevention and control at the CDC may be used to advocate or promote gun control, end quote. Note, this is not, as is commonly said to be, an outright ban on funding. The aggressive lobbying that followed, however, politicized the issue and resulted in funds drying up per Congress's power of the purse.
1: In fact, afterwards, in 2015, Jay Dickey wrote a letter to Congress in which he said, I have expressed my regrets that we didn't continue research. Research should continue in the same fashion as the highway industry. Doing nothing is no
0: longer an acceptable solution. In 2013, following Sandy Hook, President Obama issued a memorandum stating that the CDC and others, quote, shall conduct or sponsor research into the causes of gun violence and the ways to prevent it, end quote. However, Congress never funded this mandate. In fact, the Democrats, Democrats have made multiple attempts to repeal the Dickey Amendment, but have failed.
1: But in a fairly significant turn of events, recently, December 2019, Congress just approved $25 million for gun violence research, which is... Supposed to be split between the NIH and the CDC. This marks the largest amount of federal dollars ever put into gun violence research. Good news. Mm-hmm.
0: So, in summary, two important points: one, gun violence is the least researched cause of death relative to mortality rates, and two, the Dickey Amendment is not an outright ban on funding, but instead marked the politicization, excuse me, of gun violence and intense congressional lobbying from the NRA that resulted in research dollars being withheld. All right. Let's move on to gun policy. Perfect. All right. The public debate on the effect of gun policy is remarkably intense. Um, But as I mentioned before, data is limited. So how can you tell fact from fiction?
1: Well, there are some objective guides
0: out there. Right. Um, There are a number. Uh, One that I particularly like is the Science of Gun Policy from the RAND Corporation, which is a nonpartisan, not-for-profit research corporation. Uh, This, I think, is one of the more objective and comprehensive uh, syntheses of gun policy data currently available, and it is free and uh, easy uh, to download. Kind of like the Cochrane Review of gun policy. That's exactly right. And if you are interested in checking it out, I'll put a link in the show notes so you can uh, link right to it.
1: The primary focus of the RAND analysis was the systematic review of 13 broad classes of gun policies that have been implemented in some states, for example, like background checks, child access prevention laws, and stand-your-ground laws, and the effects of those policies on eight outcomes, which include defensive gun use, gun industry outcomes, hunting and recreation, mass shootings, officer-involved shootings, suicides, unintentional injuries and death, and
0: violent crimes. It's quite a list. Yeah, and and the report describes the quality uh, and findings of the best available scientific evidence. So each uh, synthesis presents and rates the available evidence and describes what conclusions, if any, can be drawn about the policy's effects on outcomes. And in many cases, a lot, more than half of the cases, the authors were unable to identify any research that met inclusion criteria, which required a study to provide minimally persuasive evidence for a policy's effects. This does not mean that these policies were ineffective. They might well be effective. Instead, it reflects the immense shortcomings in research which seems to be the rule in a lot of these
1: topics we don't know because we don't have enough data to cover it. Let's highlight some areas in which gun policies have a demonstrated effect on outcomes, though. For example, suicide. There is evidence that background checks, gun access prevention laws, minimum age requirements, and mental illness checks do decrease suicide rates. There is also evidence that background checks and mental health checks decrease violent crime rates. Conversely, there is data showing that concealed carry laws and stand your ground laws actually increase violent crime. And finally, there's no conclusive data showing
0: that any gun policies decrease mass shootings. All right. So we saw that there's data showing background checks decrease violent crime and suicide. So let's dig in on that. First off, Patrick, who can't buy a gun? All right. Good question. So per federal law, felons, fugitives, domestic abusers, drug addicts, those who have renounced their U.S. citizenship, non-U.S. citizens, the mentally ill, those who are issued a restraining order for stalking, and those who have been dishonorably discharged from the military are not eligible for gun ownership.
1: Okay. For those who can own a gun, do they need to undergo a
0: background check? So the Brady Handgun Violence Prevention Act of 1993 requires all federally licensed Firearm dealers to conduct a background check via the National Instant Criminal Background Check System, or the NICS. Notice how I emphasize federally licensed. We should also note that some states perform their own
1: background checks or use a combination of state and federal databases. Right. So, Patrick, how exactly does a background check work?
0: Right. That's a great question. And I think a highlight of this episode is is knowing how this works and what goes into it. So, first, a firearms dealer completes an ATF Form 4473 and submits online or via telephone. An NICS examiner reviews the application, then instructs the dealer to proceed, deny, or delay. Now, The average wait is two minutes. And if transferred to an NICS examiner for farther review, the average wait is eight minutes. Furthermore, the dealer may proceed if they are not notified within the next three days after submitting um, their application. And each check is valid for 30 days.
1: Wow! So an average wait of two minutes. Does the IRS have a goal that's kind of in that line too?
0: <laughs> two minutes is not very long. I think that's pretty impressive. Uh, so um, the, the national. Uh, so we, we talked about the national instant criminal background check system again, the NICS. Yeah, Patrick, what is that? Yeah, so it includes it includes three databases. Okay, the first, uh, the National Crime Information Center database, or NCIC. This is a central database for crime-related information that includes information about theft, fugitives, protective orders, gang activity, sex offenses, etc. The second of the three databases is the Interstate Identification Index, or the III. This is uh, essentially a list of individuals who have been involved in serious crimes that include felonies and some misdemeanors, but not all. And the third uh database within the NCI or excuse me, NICS is called the NICS index, which is actually a gun specific catch all database for records that are not in NCIC and the triple And this includes mental health records, immigration and customs enforcement data regarding non U.S. citizens and state specific gun law records, because as we talked about earlier, each state has its own unique set of gun laws.
1: So I imagine that there are maybe some shortcomings of these databases, even though it sounds fairly conclusive and right. complex.
0: Uh, there are four big ones, I would say. Okay, The first is the gun show loophole. The second, inadequate enforcement and regulation. Third, inadequate database reporting. And fourth, maintenance.
1: Let's start with the gun show loophole. Very uh, catchy term that's been uh, shouted out in the media quite a lot over the last few years. Specifically, Federal law requires background checks be performed by federally licensed dealers only. If you are, quote, engaged in the business of dealing firearms, end quote, you must have a license. This is defined as repetitively buying and selling guns, looking to make a profit, representing yourself as a firearms dealer. In 2015, there were 65,000 licensed dealers. Importantly, though, non-commercial private party sales, including those performed on the internet, do not require a background check, a record of gun sale, or even identification of the buyer. Ultimately, it is not known how many gun sales and transfers happen without a background check. Reports range anywhere from 22 to 57% of all the gun sales out there annually.
0: Right. Okay, so you said two really important things right there. The first is that federal law requires background checks be performed by federally licensed dealers only. And you are considered a dealer if you are, quote, engaged in the business of dealing firearms, end quote. I think the second important thing you said is that it is not known how many gun sales and transfers happen without a background check. And it could be as high as 57% of all gun sales and transfers.
1: Right. Now, that's mostly on the federal level. We should mention that 11 states and and the District of Columbia require universal background checks for all guns at the time of transfer.
0: Okay. Let's move on to the next shortcoming in the background check database, and that is inadequate enforcement and regulation.
1: Per federal law, the Bureau of Tobacco, Alcohol, and Firearms, remember the ATF, may conduct only one announced excuse me, unannounced inspection of a firearms dealer per year. And on average, federally licensed dealers are inspected about once a decade. right. So this points to the lack
0: of resources in some government agencies.
1: And in addition, per federal law, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms must prove that a firearms dealer willfully broke the law.
0: Right. So a completely different legal standard for those selling guns because, uh, Let's let me give you an, an analogy. Yeah, I'd let's say. hear. It. So, uh, so if I'm driving into work this morning and I get pulled over for speeding, I'd say that officer, officer, I didn't know that I was speeding because I didn't know what the speed limit was. That officer would then let me off uh, the hook because I didn't willfully quote willfully break the law. Correct? Wouldn't that be nice? Yeah. So that's correct. And the criminal
1: prosecution of corrupt dealers is also very rare. A statistic out there is about fifteen. 15 total corrupt dealers criminally prosecuted per year. And most violations of firearms laws are classified as misdemeanors rather than felonies, so they don't carry the same weight as those higher
0: crimes. All right, let's move on to the third shortcoming in the background check database, and that is the absence of a central registry. This surprised me. The Firearms Owners Protection Act of 1986 forbids the U.S. government from keeping a registry of firearm sales or their owners. In fact, approved purchaser information must be deleted by the NCIS within 24 hours. However, denied applications are saved.
1: Finally, the last shortcoming of the NICS database, inadequate database reporting and maintenance. This database is only as good as the information put into it. Failures include notable examples like the Virginia Tech shooting, where mental health issues were not reported, and the Charleston church shooting where a felony drug charge was not identified and the three-day waiting period expired. Both shooters bought their
0: weapons from federally licensed dealers. Yeah. So, Jason, in regards to background checks, what do other countries do? Well,
1: let's talk about an example. In Germany, just to use a European country, and, and these lists of requirements are not atypical. There are about six steps before you buy the weapon so number one you can either join a shooting club obtain a hunting license demonstrate you are a gun collector or prove that your life is threatened so one of those four number two you have to demonstrate specialized knowledge of firearms which may involve a written exam and practical demonstration of safe handling seems reasonable Number three, if you're under 25, you have to submit a certificate of mental fitness from a public health officer or doctor. Number four, arrange for proper firearm storage. Fifth step here, pass a background check that considers criminal history, mental health, and drug addiction. Number six, second to last, apply for a permit to purchase a specific gun which may also include an additional short background review. And
0: then finally, you get to go out and buy your weapon. And how about this, Jason? Do Americans even support universal background checks?
1: So that is an interesting statistic. As opposed to all of the 50-50 splits, you know, blue versus red states, that, that actually doesn't show in polls that have been done over the last couple of decades, showing almost universal support for background checks, Figures in the 80 to 90%
0: approval range. Right, and that's in, in multiple large, high quality nationwide polls. Right. All right, let's quickly summarize a few key points related to background checks. So, first, data shows background checks decrease suicide and violent crime rates. Second, only federal firearms licensed dealers, AKA FFLs, need to perform a background check. Three, the average background check takes only two minutes. Four, there's no central registry for gun sales. And lastly, the vast majority of Americans support universal background checks.
1: All right. Staying in the public policy arena, let's move on to assault weapons bans. This is something you hear a lot about. The Rand Corporation and their cochrane esque review found inconclusive evidence that banning assault weapons reduces violent crime. So question would be why is this evidence inconclusive? i figured there'd be a lot of data out there
0: about right. that. Right. All right. So as always, the devil is in fact in the details and I wanted to include this particular example of assault weapons in the episode because this is something that the more you dig into it, the more you read about it, the more you go, aha, there's, you know, there's a lot more to it than uh, a civil talking point.
1: So the assault weapons ban that is most commonly discussed when we use that phrase refers to the Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act of 1994, which is why we usually use the phrase assault weapons ban. (laughs) It's a mouthful. Which imposed a 10-year ban on the manufacture, transfer, and possession of certain semi-automatic firearms designated
0: as assault weapons. Right. So a couple of very key points. So a semi-automatic weapon is defined as a firearm that, with each deployment of the trigger, a bullet is fired, casing ejected, and it's automatically reloaded. In regards to assault weapons, there's actually no agreed-upon definition that tells us whether a firearm is, in fact, an assault weapon or not. Uh, Now, when most people think about uh, an assault weapon, they are probably, although not always, thinking about a semi-automatic rifle of some kind.
1: As opposed to something like with a bolt action, something that you have to manually go through every time. Back to the assault weapons ban... This ban was not a ban on all semi-automatic rifles, but those with features that could be useful in military or in a criminal setting, but really not useful for sport shooting or hunting.
0: Okay. So what does that actually mean? Well, it means that there were five specific features banned. The first, the first ban was a barrel mount. So a barrel mount is designed to accommodate a bayonet or a spear. You don't go deer hunting with
1: your (laughs) bayonet (laughs) mount on a regular basis, Patrick?
0: I don't know. Uh, impaling people. Uh, the second, okay, is a the banning of a flash suppressor, which could be used for for concealment, especially at nighttime. The third banned feature is a folding stock, which uh, would sacrifice accuracy for concealability and mobility. The fourth would is a pistol grip, which could allow the weapon from be to be fired from the hip more easily, or 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 quote unquote spray fired. Uh, And finally, uh, the last feature that was banned are large capacity magazines holding greater than 10 rounds.
1: And I I question how many of our listeners know all of the terminology here because of something like Call of Duty. Uh, (laughs) Hopefully that's a good reference point. Uh, So this is not entirely what you may have expected when you hear the term assault weapons ban.
0: Right. Uh, Exactly. Because those five features don't really cover some of the core features of what we often think about as assault weapons. And that's because many semi-automatic rifles don't have these features and therefore were not banned.
1: Yeah. In fact, most of those features, I I guess I would consider to be fairly unusual. And not to mention the fact that assault weapons in circulation prior to the ban were grandfathered in and therefore legal to own and transfer.
0: Right. So, what happened during the ban, which was actually in place from 1994 until 2004 when it was allowed to lapse, Jason? Did, did gun violence go down?
1: So it's it's unclear, but definitely not in a significant way. The share of gun crimes involving a banned type of assault weapon did decline by 17 to 72 percent, but this was offset by the rise of other semi-automatic weapons, often with
0: larger capacity magazines that didn't actually meet the ban's criteria. We should also mention that some studies did show a decrease in gun homicide rates, although this was certainly not universal and depended on the area studied. So in summary, the assault weapons
1: ban from 1994 to 2004 was not a wholesale ban on what many may think of as assault-type weapons, such as semi-automatic rifles, and a lot of those were still legal, and in fact, the ones manufactured before that date were legal to own and transfer. So it's, it's really difficult to draw much of a conclusion regarding
0: the effect of that decade. All right. So last policy or last discussion in the gun policy realm. What does the public think about gun safety?
1: 2018, the Gallup poll uh, completed a large national survey. And in it, 61% of Americans said they are in favor of stricter gun laws, 30% wanted no change, and only 8% wanted less strict laws.
0: And as, is, as has been historically true, more women, more Democrats, and more non-gun owners prefer stricter gun laws, while more men, Republicans, and gun owners prefer less strict gun laws.
1: So in another survey in 2017, a Pew survey, 74% of gun owners say owning a gun is essential to their freedom compared to only
0: 35% of non-gun owners. Yeah, and overall Americans are evenly split on whether more guns would result in less crime, no difference, or more crime. And the differences are most pronounced when comparing Republican gun owners, owners, excuse me, when comparing Republican gun owners of whom feel more guns would lead to less crime, compared to Democratic non-gun owners, 57% of whom feel more guns will lead to more crime.
1: Yet there is more broad public support for gun policy measures that prevent people with mental illnesses from purchasing guns, requiring universal background checks, and barring gun purchases by people on no-fly lists. There is even support, although less strong, for creating a federal database to track gun sales.
0: Right, so there is, in fact, some common ground.
1: Y- yes, there is, according to these polls. And to that end, let's uh, finish off with recommendations from the American College of Surgeons Committee on Trauma. The Firearm Strategy Team, or FAST, is a work, uh, work group created by the ACSCOT composed of surgeons that are all avid firearm owners who regularly take care of patients injured by guns and whose practices are distributed across the country.
0: Right. So this is a unique group of people with a, pers- a very I'd say special perspective into gun violence. And their recommendations were published in the Journal of the American College of Surgeons in February 2019.
1: Right. These surgeons see this firsthand in their practices in a way that I would guess most people in the United States never will
0: experience gun violence. Right. And again, these are all gun owners. Correct.
1: Okay. Yep. An important part when you take into account how political this uh, this argument can be. So there are a total of eight recommendations that were made, again, all taken uh, from this FAST committee, and they are as follows. Number one, we support a robust and accurate background check for all purchases and all transfers of firearms. Number two, we support firearm registration and the development and implementation of an electronic database for all registered firearms. Number three, we recommend a formal reassessment of the firearms designated within each of the National Firearms Act classifications. For instance, high-capacity, magazine-fed, semi-automatic rifles should be evaluated and consideration given to reclassification as a National Firearms Act Class 3 firearm or a new class designation.
0: Number four, we endorse formal gun safety training for all new gun owners and endorse hunter safety and safe gun handling education. Any training program must include four vital safety rules. One, assume the gun is always loaded. Two, finger off the trigger until ready to fire. Three, never point at anything you do not intend to kill or destroy. And four, always check all chambers before cleaning.
1: I don't know how many times I've been made to repeat that in my career. Good rules to follow. Number five, we endorse requiring firearm owners to provide safe and controlled firearm storage. Owners who do not provide reasonable safe firearm storage should be held responsible for adverse events related to discharge of their firearm or firearms. This includes the responsibility for the use of stolen firearms unless there has been a timely reporting of a stolen weapon
0: made to law enforcement. Number six, programs to remove firearms from individuals at imminent threats to themselves or others should be standard, as is done in extreme risk protection order policies, red flag laws, and other federal recommendations. Specific due process measures should be required for removal and return of firearms. Mandatory reporting to and by law enforcement and medical personnel for those who are threatening to themselves or others should become standard practice.
1: Number seven, we encourage the development of firearm technology that would significantly reduce the risk of self-harm, prevent unintentional discharge, and prevent unintended use by someone other than the registered owner of the firearm. And number eight, we recommend that research for firearm injury and firearm injury prevention must be federally funded at a level commensurate with the burden of disease without restriction.
0: All right. So a link to those recommendations from the American College of Surgeons Committee on Trauma Fast Working Group will be available in the show notes. Okay, that
1: wraps it up for our episode on gun violence in America.
0: And we absolutely hope that you learned something today.
1: Please be sure to tune in for the next episode of Behind the Knife's Big T Trauma Series. And until then, dominate the
0: day. Until next time, dominate the day.